Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special podcast series hosted by the CRISPR Journal. I'm Kevin Davis, the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal. And in this episode of our mini-series, our special guest is Jason Schultzer, independent fellow at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory uh, on Long Island. In this episode, we're discussing considerations for generating stable knockout cell lines using CRISPR. This podcast is sponsored by Horizon Discovery, the leader in CRISPR functional genomics, offering a large portfolio of CRISPR screening tools, reagents, and cell line generation. Horizon, inspired cell solutions. So as I mentioned, in this episode, our guest is Jason Schultzer, uh, who's for the last uh, four years or so has been an independent fellow at the famous Coldspring Harbor Laboratory uh, on Long Island. And uh, he's had a fantastic year. Uh, we'll get to uh, some of his most recent publications uh, and their uh, implications in just a few minutes. But Jason, first of all, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Kevin. Before we get into CRISPR knockouts and some of the challenges and perhaps best practices in, that you see in your, uh, your own uh, experimental work, perhaps we should start by just giving the audience a sense of what's the overarching goal of your research program. So my lab is very interested in interrogating cancer genetics. And there are two sorts of changes in cancer that we're particularly interested in. One are gene dosage imbalances and aneuploidies in cancer. And the second are alterations that influence cancer drug sensitivity. Okay. And is, does most of your work involve CRISPR? Have you familiarity using other forms of gene editing tools? We primarily use CRISPR. We find that it works very well and it really gives us an unprecedented level of control over the sorts of genetic alterations that we want to make or that we want to study in the context of cancer. Fantastic. Well, we're going to dive into the cancer ramifications of your work in just a couple of minutes. But first, let's sort of just maybe step back and get your, your sense of uh, uh, what do you see are some of the recent papers, perhaps, that have identified complications or caveats in standard CRISPR gene knockout practices? So we are very interested in knocking out particular genes or making different sorts of genetic modifications using CRISPR in cancer cells. But there have been a number of papers recently that have highlighted certain complications or things to watch out for when you're trying to study the effects of knocking out a particular gene or just using CRISPR in general. Yeah. There are several papers recently that have demonstrated that in many cases, knockouts aren't knockouts. That is, if you use a guide RNA to induce a frame shift mutation in an exon in a gene of interest, in some percent of cases, maybe a third of cases, maybe a half of cases, I've seen numbers like that floating around, yeah. um, the cell can compensate. That is the cell, this frame shift mutation that you introduce with CRISPR can lead to alternative splicing so that the cell simply bypasses the yep. exon with the mutation in it, or the cell can in some instances just use a second start site, a downstream uh, methionine and the cell can initiate translation from that position, yeah. thereby bypassing the CRISPR lesion. Huh. And so I think that that is a, a particular concern for making CRISPR knockouts. And do you feel that investigators fully appreciate these concerns and are able to design their guide or design their knockout in such a way as to uh, mitigate those problems? 
So I think one strategy that should be used to uh, deal with this problem is that I think sequencing a CRISPR-targeted locus alone is not sufficient. Mm. That is, maybe you target a guide RNA to an exon, you PCR up the exon, you sequence it, you see, all right, I've got a one base pair frame shift insertion, so I'm going to call this a knockout. And I think that what this recent evidence suggests is that that level of evidence isn't sufficient to call it a knockout uh, because of all of these other sort of alternative ways that the cell can express a gene of interest. I think that uh, these papers demonstrate the importance of protein-based confirmation that the protein you're interested in is truly no longer expressed. Right, right. Well, as you, as your lab um, sets about doing an experiment where you need to knock out a particular gene, what are some of the uh, other best practices that you would recommend researchers keep in mind? We recently published a methods paper in Current Protocols in Molecular Biology where we outline in some detail how we go about generating knockout clones and genes of interest. And I think that given these complications that have been published recently, I think that it's very important to pay particular attention to your technique and to your overall strategy in generating a knockout. And so right off the bat, what we do for almost all knockouts is that we don't use a single guide RNA. We generate knockouts with two guide RNAs that target distinct exons in a gene of interest. Yes. So in that way, either we are generating a segmental deletion between the two cut sites, so we're eliminating a large part of the gene, or we're inducing two separate frame shift mutations. Yeah. And I think that by eliminating a large fraction of a gene, you can't just get around that with alternative splicing or with downstream translational initiation. I think that generating a a large deletion is really the best way to ensure that you're totally lacking the expression of a gene of interest. Yes. On top of that, I think that it is also worth considering the functional domains in a protein that you're targeting. So if you're targeting a kinase, and maybe the kinase is in the C-terminal domain of a protein, if you target a guide RNA to the first or the second exon, you can very easily just bypass that mutation and get downstream translation initiation or splicing that allows the functional part of the protein, the kinase domain, to still be expressed. I think that instead, if you target guide RNAs to the functional domain of a protein, say, to the kinase domain, then you're, you're knocking out the key part. And again, then you're much less likely to see compensation. And I should say that that particular finding was discovered by Junwei Shi and Chris Vakic, and it was published in a paper in Nature Biotechnology in 2015. Okay, excellent. Well, with all of that excellent um, sort of best practices in mind, I really want to turn to discussing a superb paper that you recently published or your team recently published in Science Translational Medicine. It was entitled, Off-Target Toxicity is a Common Mechanism of Action of Cancer Drugs Undergoing Clinical Trials. Would you set the stage for us, Jason, and tell us uh, what, what was the objective of this study and then perhaps what were some of the, uh, the major headlines uh, resulting from it? 
So it's a bit of a roundabout story, but I think that that's oftentimes okay. that's how science yeah, gets done. Yeah. So we uh, were doing a computational project initially where we were looking for genes that were associated with cancer prognosis, genes whose expression or amplification was associated with metastasis and death from cancer. And this computational analysis identified a kinase called MELK, M-E-L-K, as strongly associated with patient prognosis. And we started studying MELK because we had found this patient association and because a significant amount was known about this kinase. It had been reported to be essential for triple negative breast cancer. A company had developed an inhibitor of this kinase that was in clinical trials. And so we wanted to study it largely as a positive control for our findings because we had found it through this computational approach and there was so much that was known about it. However, when we started interrogating this gene using CRISPR, we found that we couldn't reproduce many of the findings that had been previously reported about this gene. That is, we knocked the MELK gene out in triple negative breast cancer cell lines and in lots of other cell lines with CRISPR, and there was really no phenotype that we could detect. The cells grew fine, they formed tumors in nude mice just fine. And so that led us to think that maybe this previous research was in part due to off-target effects of some of the technologies that they had used, namely RNA interference technologies and small molecule inhibitors both of which are pretty prone to off-target effects. Yeah. So we published two papers on MELK in 2017 and 2018, and, and we were very happy that a second group independently came to the same conclusion using CRISPR, they could eliminate MELK and they didn't see any strong impacts. Yeah. And so after this, we took a step back and we wanted to think here, did we just stumble across a really unique set of bad circumstances where this drug had advanced into clinical trials based off of off-target artifacts and irreproducible research? Or was it possible that this was potentially indicative of a larger problem with identifying cancer essential genes and taking drugs into clinics? And so we wanted to test that possibility. And so we looked for the factors that went into advancing a MELK inhibitor to clinical trials, and then we tried to find other drugs that fit that pattern. And so the key things that I think were involved were first, reliance on RNA interference experiments to identify cancer essential genes. And the second is the development of a chemical compound to target a gene of interest, but where you didn't have genetic validation that protein was the drug's true target. And by genetic validation, I mean a mutation or other genetic alteration that grants resistance to a drug of interest. And so we use those criteria, and then we put together a list of other drugs and other drug targets that met those criteria, and then we set out to study them using CRISPR. And in a nutshell, we found that we were unable to reproduce a lot of the previous literature on several other targets where drugs had advanced to clinical trials. Yeah, yeah. The paper seemed to generate a tremendous, I mean, a really extraordinary response online. Were you surprised by the breadth of interest? It really went viral. I was very happy uh, with the favorable <laughs> response that it seemed. And I think in many instances, it was surprising. It was 
quite exciting to me as a junior scientist to see that this paper was covered in the New York Times, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, seeing a live cell microscopy video that one of my students had recorded, yes. published in the Times, we were really, really excited yeah. and happy about that. That's great. What has been the response of the pharmaceutical industry? I mean, you are raising doubts about drugs that are actively under clinical investigation, correct? Yes. So the response from the pharmaceutical industry, I would say, has been positive overall. Yeah. One strand of response that I have gotten is that pharma is sitting on a ton of negative data. Yeah. That is maybe even for some of these genes that we studied in the paper, some companies have read the cancer literature, thought about taking a drug into clinical trials based on what's published in the literature, and then tried to reproduce some of the findings and just kind of came to the same conclusion that we did, which is that some of these experiments aren't reproducible. And then it just, you know, kind of sits in a vault at, you know, Merck or at Pfizer, and they don't go forward with their drug development program, but the negative data doesn't see the light of day. And so I think some people were maybe not particularly surprised because they know that in the pharmaceutical industry, there are lots of discoveries where they can't reproduce them internally, and so they don't go forward. Right. So a second issue is that for some of these drugs, the way they behave in a human patient can be very different from the way they behave when you're giving them to a cancer cell line in a Petri dish, or even when you're giving them to a mouse. These drugs could have effects on the immune system. They could have effects on angiogenesis. They could have effects on processes that we aren't explicitly studying when we're looking at MDA MB231 breast cancer cells grown in culture. And so for some of these drugs, we are challenging the notion that they kill cancer cells in a cell autonomous manner by inhibiting their particular target, but they could have other complicated effects on the immune system, which we can't rule out. And so I've had some discussions along those lines with companies. Well, very important research. We're looking forward to monitoring where this goes in the coming years because we all collectively potentially stand to benefit from these sorts of insights. Jason, in the last minute or two, another interesting sideline of yours is that you've provided some fascinating input and statistics on prizes and awards when we come to things like Nobel Prize season. How did that interest of yours get started? I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. I think that some people are interested in baseball statistics or football (laughs) statistics. I was never very interested in that, but I found it very fascinating to look at academic prizes and academic career progression and things like that. So are we going to get a uh, a wager from you on uh, when CRISPR will finally get the Nobel nod? The when is very hard, but I think that with high confidence, it will be coming in the next several years or so. Right. And you would venture chemistry, I presume. It could go either. It could be medicine, physiology, or it could be chemistry. I think it depends on who it's awarded to and what it's awarded to. It's such a remarkable discovery with so many different implications that you could see it chopped up in many different ways. (laughs) Yes, indeed. No pun intended. Well, listen, very interesting conversation, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us and congratulations on 
all of the uh, brilliant work that's come out of your lab and best wishes going forward. Our guest on the podcast today was Jason Schultzer, Independent Fellow at Coldspring Harbor Laboratory in Long Island. So on behalf of the team at the CRISPR Journal and our sponsors, Horizon Discovery, thanks for joining us and we hope to see you again very soon. This is Kevin Davis. Goodbye for now. <laughs>